Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Abrogatinas. And we are picking up this evening once again with Hypothesis 21, and we're on page 180. And if you remember, we had been looking at, uh, for the last two hypotheses on revealing of one's thoughts to elders in order that they might apply a uh, kind of healing remedy or balm to give some guidance and counsel. And uh, in hypothesis 21, the focus shifts on only revealing those thoughts to a person who has a gift of discernment or has the experience to really offer good counsel, that it can be a dangerous thing to indiscriminately open one's mind and heart and conscience to another. And uh, so we've been listening to a series of questions that uh, a younger monk has had for his elder about the circumstances of, of entrusting those thoughts to a particular individual and how one goes about discerning. And so that's where we're picking up this evening. You know, what are the circumstances where one would reveal one's thoughts? And if, uh, if there isn't a change that takes place, how does one respond to that? Or if one seems to receive counsel uh, that puts one at ill at ease. How does one respond to that as well? So again, for those who just joined, we are on page 180, letter K at the bottom. And again, the brother said, and if I transgress a command through the influence of some temptation, what should I do? And so if you remember, there was a distinction made in the last group between uh, simple counsel that is given that an elder might give to someone who comes to him and talks to him about the spiritual life. And so gen some general counsel about the spiritual life and uh, a distinction between that and a command that an individual would ask, actually ask for from an elder and uh, to show the weight of it would prostrate himself before the elder and ask him to uh, uh, place upon him some spiritual discipline that he's bound morally to keep. And so this is what the young monk uh, is picking up with here tonight. If I transgress that command uh, through the influence of some temptation, what should I do? And the elder responds, if you receive a command from a certain holy man and violate it, do not despair, neither lose hope nor think to abolish it, but remember him who said, for a just man falleth seven times and rise up again just as the Lord also, who said to Peter that he had to forgive his brother until 70 times seven. If then God gave to mankind the command to forgive so many times, how much more will he himself do the same, since he is rich in mercy and compassion and is victorious in all things? Elsewhere, this same one cries out daily through the, his prophet, turn ye unto me, and I shall turn unto you. For I am merciful and desire not the death of the sinner, and so on. So the elder works very quickly to assure him not to fall into despair, that even that which is given as a command uh, is, to, is going to be met with a kind of tenderness, gentleness, and guidance, that often we will fail for one reason or another, through neglect, through the temptation itself, uh, through not following the guidance or the direction of an elder. Uh, but one should not expect to be treated harshly or poorly in the face of this, as long as there is goodwill there, that somebody's struggling, engaging in the spiritual battle, but for one reason or another, 
falls. And, you know, this is important also for those who are in the position of offering spiritual counsel to others, that uh, their, their responsibility is to reconcile others to God and to do all in their power. And as we'll hear further on here this evening, that an elder takes upon himself the burden of the command that he places upon the other. And in terms of praying for the individual that he might faithfully fulfill it, and also in supporting him in the struggle to fulfill it through his prayers and through his additional counsel. So always tenderness, gentleness, uh, but the willingness to make personal sacrifices in order to help one and one's charge. He goes on and says, take care lest hearing that a command abolished by transgression can be restored through repentance. You become indifferent and fall into neglect for this is a very serious thing. Also do not ignore command with regard to things which may seem inconsequential. But if a certain omission occurs in these things, take care to correct them, keeping in mind that from indifference to small things, one can also end up in great errors. So the elder quickly warns him not to, to fall into a spirit of neglect, uh, simply because you can be assured of the, the gentle and kind counsel of your elder, you don't want to allow that to lead you uh, to let down your guard in the spiritual battle or to lead you into neglect in terms of your spiritual disciplines. This we are all held responsible for, how fully we strived, as it were, to enter by the narrow gate. And so we, we don't want to neglect those duties or the spirit of repentance, nor do we want to become uh, lazy in regards to things that are seem to be of smaller import or lesser import. That uh, often when we neglect the things that seem of, to be of no matter to us or insignificant or that won't ultimately offend God or lead us into grave sin, uh, at that time, it might not, but uh, sort of the role within the spiritual life is that uh, if we do ignore the smaller things, then we become vulnerable over the course of time. And even part of the temptation of the evil one is often to lead us into that kind of neglect, these little omissions that set us up for a greater fall at a later time. Uh, and so we want to be attentive to all things, great or small. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past where people often ask about that distinction between uh, venial and mortal sin, which is an important and valuable distinction. But sometimes what goes along with that is the sense that the venial things, those that are things that are not of grave matter are of, le again, lesser import in the spiritual battle, and they aren't. I mean, this is where we, in fact, are to struggle the most with the small things in order that we might be entrusted with uh, a greater spiritual battle and also be entrusted with the greater graces of God in order to enter into that battle more fully. Any comments so far on this section? Pretty straightforward to the, at this point. Okay, letter L, the brother said, the thought comes to me not to consult holy men so that not learning what is correct and not perhaps later through my weakness, disregarding it, 
I will thus avoid sin. <laughs> so better to remain stupid, better to remain ignorant, and so avoid uh, the responsibility for uh, for one sin. Uh, I think people have often had that feeling in these groups that uh, when you read Calamicus or Cassian, Isaac the Syrian, uh, you know, or the Evergatinos, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, there's no going back. You know, once I see these things about the spiritual life, and not only the responsibilities, but the great gifts that have been given to us, we can't turn a blind eye to it or pretend that we haven't heard it. But uh, this young brother's great. I mean, he misses no opportunity to explore whatever avenue one could possibly go down uh, to perhaps avoid trouble. And so the elder responds to him, this thought is very fearful and sinister. Therefore, do not entertain it, for if one sins after he learns what is right, he reproaches himself for his sin. If he does not learn the right thing and sins, then he will never reproach himself as one who has fallen, and on this account, his sins will remain unhealed. For this reason, the devil exposes men to such thoughts so that they will remain unhealed. When the thought comes to mind, therefore, that, that perchance on account of human weakness, you will be unable to follow the advice of your elder, then you should consult the elder saying, Father, since I want to do this, explain its benefit to me. I realize that even though you have so advised me, I cannot carry through and hold to your word, but I want to know about this and wish at least to be instructed so that I might reproach myself for neglecting what was in my interest. This admission is also humbling for you. May the Lord then enlighten your heart so that you will hear and be preserved by the prayers of the saints, amen. And so ignorance is not bliss, this elder is telling him. In fact, he's telling him it's something sinister that the evil one would want to lead us into this place where we would be ignorant of the things uh, of, the, of the kingdom, things divine, or that have been revealed to us. And that in that ignorance, then be inattentive to the wounds that we bear. And so not seeing them, not uh, understanding uh, the reason for the, the suffering that we often experience because of our sin, we don't repent, we don't turn to the Lord and so know his healing or in, incapable of receiving the advice of elders or even a confessor within a confessional, unable to receive it and understand it and so apply it. And so the advice, the counsel that is given is to humble oneself. And even when we realize, I do not know this and I, I'm, I'm really struggling with this and can't seem to break free of what I'm struggling with. The first step for us is to humbly acknowledge before an elder that I don't know what to do here. And what, what might I, I do in order to learn uh, the path that I need to take forward? What are the remedies that the fathers put forward for healing you know, of this or that uh, particular temptation or passion? And so, you know, I find often, you know, certainly I think looking at my own life, uh, and after talking to many people over the course of the years, that sometimes we will turn a blind eye to the things that we struggle with. 
And we can even have a subtle awareness that there's some, this is bringing harm to our life, suffering to our life, or preventing us from fully experiencing the joy that comes through intimacy and communion with Christ. And we will again and again, almost again as a kind of reflexive memory, step back into the things that we know bring us harm. And so neglect even to ask for help. And uh, I remember it's sort of reminiscent of, I'm sure doctors have this experience. Uh, we have a doctor in, in the room here, but oftentimes people will put off things, hoping that they will go away on their own. And I've had the experience of this before where I've gone into a doctor and I had to, I apologized. I said, I've had this for about eight years. <laughs> and uh, we sort of laughed about it. And he said, you know, don't apologize. People do this all the time because there's partly it's fear of what is going to be required then to take care of the problem. And, uh, and I think that's true for us as well. You know, what changes will I have to make in my life or what kind of discipline might the elder ask of me or uh, tell me to consider in the spiritual life? And uh, wanting to avoid that, uh, we, again, will turn a blind eye to the very things that we are struggling with and, and limp along for years and uh, find ourselves being beaten down more and more and led into a kind of spiritual depression, even over some of the things that we've struggled with perhaps for, for decades. I think the story in the gospel, uh, do you remember this story where I think it's 34 years, was it 34 years where the man seeks to crawl into the waters that stir the pool of Siloam, I think it is. And he is always pushed out of the way and then has to crawl back. And I often think of that, you know, that for many of us, perhaps there are things that we've struggled with for 20, 30, 40 years. And for one reason or another, have not been able to get to that place of healing. And uh, it's interesting in that gospel, Jesus asked him directly, and it almost seems sort of cold and callous, do you want to be healed? And this is a guy who'd been struggling for 34 years just to get into this healing pool of water. And, but it's a legitimate question, I think, when we put it to ourselves. Now, do I want to be healed of the thing that I struggle with? And I think uh, humility and kind of honesty leads us to say, well, with some things, maybe not, or, or that we can have contradictions within our own heart. There's part of us that wants to be free of it, but there's another part that's very attached to the satisfaction, perhaps, that comes through a particular passion. And so the honest answer to that would be not really or only partially. And so the place for us to begin in spiritual direction would be to ask uh, the elder that there's part of me that is really attached to this or has this sense that I'm going, uh, even after confessing it, going to step right back into it because it's what's familiar. And that there's, you know, I, I really don't have a sense in the grace of the sacrament uh, uh, in so, to such an extent that uh, that I can be free of it. I'm sorry, somebody was trying to get on Zoom there. Um, 
So, you know, kind of this kind of honesty, he says, it will humble you to admit it, but it's the first step towards healing, to ask for instruction, to ask for help. Okay, so this would be one of those good paragraphs to, to highlight, I think, and to underline and to go back and reflect upon. And it's a simple thing, but our, our pride often gets in the way and keeps us from asking the things that we need to. Okay. Sheila writes, I often feel like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill only to have it come crashing down, rinse, repeat. Yes, I've always loved that image of Sisyphus, uh, but it's a painful one because often it does feel like that in the spiritual life, that you're pushing this enormous boulder up a mountain and then it rolls down over top of you and you have to go down to the end, you know, bottom of the hill and start pushing it up again. Ambrose Little. I find it interesting, he writes, that the brother and probably often we as well, thinks of sin primarily as being condemned for knowingly transgressing the law of God. Meanwhile, the elder notes the deeper reality that sin carries its own penalty, penalty that inherently harms us, whether we know it is a sin or not. And so we should want to know the law not so that we can be condemned, but that we may avoid harming ourselves. And when we do, uh, to know we need to seek healing. Right, absolutely. That I, I think there is, a, you know, and part of it I think is kind of the legalism that we often will fall into as, as well in terms of our view of sin and of the spiritual life and uh, seeing it simply as an infraction of, of a moral law rather than a deep wound. And I think this is where a lot of the Eastern writers present things beautifully in terms of seeing the church as a hospital and the sacraments being the means of healing for us, that sin does bring its own wounds to us. And so again, as, as you said, knowing what that is and what we, where, where and where we might find help and what that might be, becomes the most important thing for us, not so much worrying about whether or not it's going to be condemned. But, you know, I think growing up and maybe, you know, I think our spiritual formation often ends, uh, if it ever really begins sometimes, but often ends, you know, with confirmation, you know, uh, that there isn't much that goes on beyond that, sadly, I think, and in terms of catechesis, uh, except I think within the families that are really dedicated uh, to ongoing formation. And sometimes it's very difficult too to move it out of just being in the head and to the heart in terms of how it is that we live our day-to-day -day life and enter into that relationship with Christ. So not focusing solely on the theology, although that's important uh, to understand as well. Sometimes we can lose sight of, you know, what does it mean to be a son or daughter of God? What blessings does that bring to us? But also then how does that, what, what does that say to us about the, the shape of our life and how we want to, to be living? And so rarely do you find that talked about. And I think even among adult Catholics, there is a lot of discussion surrounding particular issues facing the culture, the church itself, liturgy, whatever it might be. And not that those things are unimportant, but uh, for us, you know, truth is a person. 
And so in all the things that we struggle with and struggle to understand as human beings, that is where we begin with Christ. And we begin in the most personal way. And even in saying the, the Jesus prayer, uh, you know, it's not a kind of mantra and it's not this meditation where we are seeking this kind of abstract peace. We are seeking Christ and then through calling out to him in the most personal way. And so when we see evil within the world, we see sin in the world, this you know, disintegration of the culture, our first response should be to turn to Christ and to seek that greater healing, wholeness and integration internally for ourselves. This is where we strengthen the church as well as the world around us. And uh, I think it's easy for us to project things outward rather than focusing upon what's going on within our heart and in our relationship with Christ. As though somehow that, that does not touch upon everything else going on in the world, that we live in this kind of blessed isolation where our sin or our neglect of that relationship does not have an effect upon what is going on in the church and the world as a whole. It's one of the first illusions I think that we have to, to break. Anthony. If we confess contritely to God and are forgiven, and when we receive the Eucharist and are forgiven, venial sins, and go to confession and are forgiven, what is the relationship between the legal, the spiritual, the therapeutic aspects of forgiveness? When is one actually forgiven, so to speak? Well, it's a good question. You know, uh, um, I think when we started out the Evergatinos, and for those of you who were with us from the beginning, uh, you'll remember how powerful those early hypotheses were, that they all started out with repentance, the turning of the mind and the heart to God, this realization of our need for his grace and his mercy, and that that turning of the mind and the heart immediately begins uh, to bring about a flood of grace and mercy upon us. And God has given us the means to experience that forgiveness and that mercy in the most concrete way, not wanting it to be an abstraction for us. This is the whole point of the incarnation and how, as Catholics, our understanding of the incarnation changes the way that we understand our relationship with God and our experience of God and of the church himself, experiencing him in and through the church as the body of Christ. And then his continued ministry of, of reconciling us and of healing, healing us through the sacramental life. Uh, but I think sometimes we can become myopic in our view of those things or become very legalistic and not understand and lose sight of the fact that it is a relationship. And though we are bound by those things to seek the means that God has given to us for forgiveness, for healing, as you mentioned here, the sacrament of confession itself or Holy Eucharist, that God is not bound by those things, that God is free to act in our life and certainly sees the movement of a heart and humility and love toward him. And so we find in the fathers an emphasis in the early hypotheses that that healing and that forgiveness begins and, and in reality takes place at that moment. Uh, and I, th I think this is where we get tripped up sometimes that if you remember in the stories, 
that somebody's living a life, a dissolute life, or they've been unfaithful to their vocation, or they fell into prostitution even after being uh, a nun, and they come to a realization of that broken relationship with God, or somebody goes to them and engages them, and they they repent and they turn back to God, and. And we were told these stories over and over again in those first hypotheses that on their way back, on their road back to the monastery or the convent, they die. And the elder sees their soul ascend to heaven. And that the repentance, uh, the desire within the heart for God and for forgiveness and mercy provides for what is lacking there. So they weren't able to make any change in their way of life whatsoever. Uh, but the, that movement of desire toward God brings upon, the, uh, upon them a flood of grace and mercy. And I think it's only when we get tied up in sort of a legalistic framework of things that we say, well, it only takes place in this fashion. We are boxing God in and hemming him in, in the sense of how he really works in a person's life. And I know as a priest talking to so many people that they feel hopeless when they get boxed into that or where they find themselves falling into the same thing over and over again because they feel that in the eyes of God there is absolutely no hope for them because they're so entrenched in a particular passion or has such a grip upon them. And the, the experience of the mercy of God and the tenderness of God has been so foreign to them, so lacking in its concreteness, that it's, it's not something that they can, can believe. And I, I think this is where, you know, perhaps we've lost our way a little bit. And I think we're even... Pope Francis, you know, especially early on in his pontificate, he seemed to really hit home on this a lot, you know, in the sense of those of having the responsibility to go out to those in need, to be amongst them, to be the presence of that mercy and that love. And we, we see that among the saints about, you know, their very being sort of uh, opening the minds and the hearts of people to believe in that. They have an encounter of God's mercy and love. Like somebody like Mother Teresa, for example, I know we've used her often before, but more of a contemporary example that being in her presence gave people this experience of the love and the mercy of God and the joy of the kingdom. And I think this is what Pope Francis was saying is that we, we really have to bring that presence of Christ to others. That all the means that we have been have, have been have been that have been given to us through the incarnation and through the the, the church itself and the sacramental life is they're all God's gifts to us, but we don't want to use them and think about them in such a way that they become an obstacle to our believing and trusting in the mercy of God, so that we become terrified of turning toward them or feel that there's no value in doing so. Carol. The story of the alcoholic monk 
carried away by angels comes to mind. Even though one may seem to be unsuccessful in the struggle, God has mercy on and sees the effort. Exactly. So uh, what Carol's making reference here is a story in one of those early hypotheses where, you know, all the monks in the monastery looked down on this particular monk because he, at a very early age, was exposed to the use of alcohol. And so was addicted at the earliest years of his life. And so enters into the monastery and all the way through his life in the monastery, he struggles with alcoholism and keeps falling back into it. And over the course of time, there was some measure of freedom that came to him, but throughout his entire life until he died, he struggled with uh, the drinking problem and was held in scorn by all the other monks as being a drunk. And yet the elder saw the truth, you know, after he had, he had died, that he saw again, this, the soul of this individual ascending into heaven, that there was this depth of faith and spirit of repentance within, within this man, in the face of his poverty, in the face of his sin, uh, that uh, brings him the truest and deepest healing. Now, there's, uh, I've often mentioned this Orthodox priest, Father Stephen Freeman. Uh, if you ever have a chance to read his, his uh, articles on his, his uh, website, I think it's called Glory to God. Is that right? Does anybody confirm that for me? But superb. But, you know, he says, we, we are saved through our sin. And immediately when you hear that, it's jarring. But it's often, you know, our sin and seeing the poverty of it and experiencing the poverty of it that will bring us to a state of humility that allows us then to turn toward God. And that's the path of healing for us. And we often see uh, salvation as, you know, rising above that and being untouchable. And I'll guarantee you, there's not one of us here, you know, psychologically, spiritually, you know, that it's going to leave this world well-adjusted and perfectly holy. And, uh, and yeah, glory to God for all things is the website. And, uh, and so, and he's very, he's very much rooted in the, the tradition of the fathers as well. And I think it's an important thing for us to take hold of. And he often receives a lot of pushback on this because I, I think we, we like the security that certain boundaries create for us. And I think even this young brother becomes sort of the example of that for us in this hypothesis, asking all these questions over and over again. He wants to know every little detail about this so that he can figure out how he can navigate this path of you know, obedience to elders or to healing. And when in reality, when we're in a relationship with the living God and find ourselves falling into the hands of the living God, that, it, you know, it's more about our abandonment to that grace and mercy than it is about our own efforts. And uh, not that our efforts are unimportant in any way or our trust specifically in the grace of the sacraments. Uh, but what is more important is our trust in the grace and the mercy of God and what has been revealed to us on the cross. So, Anthony, I don't know if that answered your question. Any follow-up? 
Okay. Uh, it, it, it does answer a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. But, but at the same time, maybe because I have a legal mind, that, that could be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but you say, okay, you confess your sin, you forget it. Dom Scupoli says, forget it. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it again because it's a waste of time. Especially if you're thinking, is it venial? Is it mortal? What did I do? And you can go on and on like, like, a, like a crazy person. But at the same time, okay, I'm forgiven, but I should make a good effort to remember these things. And so you store them up in your head like they're in your knapsack, but you can't carry a priest in your pocket because that's just crazy. So, you know, I use that as a, as a silly example. You can't keep running to the confessional all the time. Um, and they say, oh, holy people like John Paul II went to confession every week. It, it's like, there's got to, something doesn't fit. Something doesn't seem right. You know, I, and, and I guess I'm trying to find sanity about this. Well, I, I think the thing, you know, even more than, okay, finding sanity in it is probably a good question because I think people feel that they're brought to the edge of insanity about it or depression, uh, that it is the encounter again with the living God, with the, God of mercy, who's revealed himself in his only son uh, in the most perfect of all ways as mercy and as forgiveness. And this has to be our starting point. And, uh, you know, our looking at the incarnation, I think part of our, our struggles, we start at the end with the, with, with the crucifixion, and we have a tendency to focus upon that and Christ bearing the weight of our sin, and so the need to make reparation. And so we can add sort of this sense that we have to pay off the debt of our sin through our ascetical practices. And whereas I think in the East, there is uh, this kind of start with, with the incarnation, you know, this self-emptying of, of Christ, that begins in the incarnation, this downward mobility of humbling himself, of entering into our state in the most radical way. Paul says, he who knew no sin made himself to be sin. And he did does this in order that none of us would know isolation. None of us would experience uh, a kind of hopelessness in the deepest and darkest struggles that we have as human beings that always we meet there, even in the darkest of places, he who is light, we meet Christ. There's not one place that he has not gone, enters into the very depths of hell, which means also entering into the very depths of our hell, the, the things that we've experienced and uh, have struggled with and perhaps you know remain hidden in the recesses of our minds and our hearts. All of these places Christ has entered into and embraced as his own. And uh, I think when we focus upon things only in the legalistic way, you know, of, of, of Christ taking all these things on, but to see it in a kind of uh, way that isn't really reflective of a relationship of love and of mercy, but of re this repayment of this debt, then we move to that legal you know, the, the sort of legal way of viewing things. And then we pull it back to ourselves as something that we 
have to pay back, not, so, not simply in gratitude or giving over our life to him, uh, but, so, uh, but more in you know, trying to perfect our life in our own sense of what that would look like. And, uh, and so it becomes a subtle distortion. We become Pharisees in that way, that they objectively and from you know, people's point of view led this very holy life. They knew the law inside and out. They kept it, and including all the minutiae that began to surround it perfectly. You know, they, they even had these certain Pharisees, there were different levels of Pharisees, and there was one group that were called the bloody and bruised Pharisees. They would, not, they would never look upwards to where they were going, so they would never look at a woman and so be drawn into temptation. And so they would often fall into ditches and run into trees and things like that. And so they gained this title as bloody and bruised Pharisees. And so when we begin to construct Christianity in a, in a way that, that feels more comfortable to us or acceptable to us, uh, because there is this drive in us, I think, for retribution, an eye for an eye. And so when we hear something like, do not resist one who is evil, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, there's part of us that recoils from this, because ultimately we don't want to be the one who does not have to, does not resist the one who is evil. We think it's insane. And so we hold on to those boundaries, even though we know that's costly to ourselves, uh, maybe not consciously, but on some level, we, we know it becomes an obstruction to our experiencing the fullness of that intimacy and love and forgiveness of God, that though we were enemies, still enemies, he treated us with love and ultimately dies for us on the cross. And you know, that pulls us back over and over again, I think, to that legalistic, those, the legalistic objections that says, yes, but, you know, can God love us to this extent that the mere turning of the mind and the heart toward him brings upon a flood of mercy? And I, th I think this is what people in Jesus' day objected to, you know, his saying, your sins are forgiven you. And, you know, his protecting of the woman caught in adultery, you know, the healing of the, the, the man who had been, you know, had a, a disability from, you know, his youth or had been blind from his youth, you know, that, you know, that this, the, you know, they even accuse the man of being born in sin, you know, it's because either because of the sin of his parents or his own sin that he bore this affliction. You know, that we, we slip back into that pharisaical mindset very quickly. Okay. All right, why don't we move on? So uh, we're at letter M at the bottom of the page. And again, the brother asks, Father, tell me why when at, I'm at times tyrannized by temptations and beseech the elders to pray for me, and I hear what they tell me, my soul is immediately put at ease. The elder answered, when a ship is endangered by waves, if it has a capable captain, he by the wisdom given to him by God can save the ship. And when the ship is saved, the passengers rejoice 
And the one who is ill is not so gladdened by the reputation of the physician as by the physician's efforts themselves. And is he who is threatened on a journey by thieves who are ready to attack him, not little strengthened by the voices of soldiers guarding him, but much more by their presence. If then things are so, what joy and security the advice of the fathers can provide to those who hear it, since this advice is accompanied by intense and warm prayer to God, who says, pray for one another that you may be healed. These fathers make their own the sufferings of others, crying to Jesus, their common master, saying to him with the sweetest tears, Master, save us, we perish. So you hear it in the language that there is no sense of this individualistic, isolated view of Christianity, that the elder with the most intense and warm prayer calls out to God, takes upon the suffering and the burden of others, cries out to Jesus, common master with the sweetest tears, master save us for we are perishing. The elder does not see the suffering of the one in his care as only that person's suffering, but as his own. This was the love of Christ and this is the love demanded of an elder, but demanded really of all of us as Christian men and women that we are always to look upon the sin, the sufferings of others as if it were our own and be willing to do everything that we can to bring healing and hope. And often we find a kind of opposite voice, you know, within the church too, there can be a fierceness and there, the sense that fear is the stronger driving force more than love and mercy and compassion. Whereas we're told in this story, the mere voice of the elder brings healing and hope to the individual. And I dare say it's not the elder yelling at him, just stop it already, you know, quit doing, quit doing that stuff or you're going to, you know, go to hell, you know, and giving a, him a gib smack on the back of the head or something like that. You know, it's, this is so often, I think, our, our view of Christianity. And so it's always fascinating to find, you know, in the Desert Fathers, something like this, because I have had people over time tell me, you know, that it's all about escape from the world, or it's all about, you know, this negative view of the self and of humanity, and that their teachings are archaic and don't really have any value for the present. When, to me, it's the most beautiful of all things. We see the, the tenderness and the mercy that we see in Christ in the gospel. And this path to healing and hope, this, this view of humanity and the view of the mercy of God that is incredible. So I think somebody put up uh, uh, Ren Witter. It's incredible how many stories there are about men doing crazy things just to avoid us seeing us. There must be a story somewhere about a, about a woman who did the same thing to avoid seeing men, right? Haha, <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> I don't know. It often seems, seems to be the men who have that bigger uh, struggle uh, in that regard, but uh, it's always a great story to tell. Of course, the motivation to avoid seeing men might be very different, right? 
This is payback for your burqa comment, Ambrose. <laughs> yeah, all of you should be wearing burqas. No. Okay, so, uh, so it unfolds more and more for us here in, in this hypothesis, in this little section with the brother's questions you know, of just how wonderful a gift to have an elder who is discerning and is capable of offering this kind of healing and hope in the spiritual battle. He goes on to say, since then, the supplications of the just man have so much power when they are made with warmth and zeal, as the scriptures say, let us not neglect to implore the righteous to pray for us. For even if we are unworthy, our good master values the person of his servants, and, and he has already so many times done, will have mercy on us. Thus the scripture says, he will fulfill the desire of them who fear him. The righteous cried and the Lord heard them and delivered them out of all their affliction. Brother, many times have robbers fled, hearing the voices of those stronger than they. The same happens with spiritual thieves as well, when they hear the voice of those stronger than they in the gifts of the Holy Spirit who hear from them, their master and protector Jesus, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. The thieves thus leave terrified and ashamed. Let us therefore beseech the saints to pray for us and let us make them our protectors for our benefit will be great. So spiritual thieves, the, the demons them, themselves, uh, that would seek to draw us into that kind of despair over sin, uh, are sent fleeing when they, they hear, hear the prayers of God's blessed ones, the holy ones, the saints. And I've mentioned here before, St. Philip Neri said, whenever we are struggling, we should make ourselves spiritual beggars that we should go from saint to saint seeking their aid and their help. And again, this emphasizes for us that we don't live out our Christian life in isolation, that we are part of the body of Christ, but also we live in union with all the, the angels and the saints. And so we're not alone on the battlefield. And it's this reality that should give us the greatest strength and courage in the spiritual battle, knowing is who it is that is with us on that battlefield and fighting next to us, all the angels and saints, our guardian angel and Christ himself. What do we have to fear? Anthony. Father, do you suppose that this relates to my question that I had about confession? Mm -hmm. Because see, see, when you store up all these things and you gotta remember them, you get afraid, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And, uh, and maybe part of the point to go into the confessional also, even though God forgives a contrite heart, is to get the aid of God's ordained priest in, in his prayers to assist you. Uh, it, it is, am I, does that sound right? Could you just say that one more time, the last yeah. part? Well, like part of the reason going to confession is not only legal, but, but how God honors his saints, how the elder just explained that in the last part of Evergatinos. Well, the priest is God's ordained saint on earth, so to speak. Um, and maybe you're partly going to him also for 
his strong aid? Well, I think that's part of it, but I think the greater measure of, of it is that it's really the encounter with Christ. Okay. In and through the priest who acts in, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And so everything should be done in order that that experience might be heightened of the mercy and the tenderness of God. That how a person is engaged in the sacrament uh, leads them to this experience of Christ and his mercy, that it becomes concrete and tangible, not just in the articulation of the list of particular sins, but the spirit with which they come to confession, the repentance of heart that they have, but also the, the kindness and tenderness that they receive in the counsel of the confessor. And uh, so it all becomes this experience of an encounter with the living God. That's, that's what the sacraments are to be for us, this experience of the love and the mercy of God. We hear for ourselves audibly those words, your sins are forgiven you. We receive in the most concrete and tangible the love of God and intimacy with him through, through Holy Communion, that it might not be this abstract or legal thing in our mind, you know, we're fulfilling a certain set of laws or roles, but rather an encounter with a, a love that is beyond imagination and beyond, you know, beyond all boundaries. You know, this is why, you know, he says earlier in, the, in this little section, you know, if, if God tells Peter, if the Lord tells Peter, you have to forgive 70 times seven, you know, what is the Lord not going to give to the individual who turns to him? If he's asking Peter for this unconditional forgiveness, you remember what Peter was doing there. He thought he was showing this largesse, you know, that the rule was if somebody sins against you once, you forgive them. If, you sin against them. if they sin against you twice, you forgive them. A third time, forgive them. If they sin against you the fourth time, you do not forgive them. Three strikes and you're out. And so Peter doubles it. And adds one for good measure, you know, showing that, okay, Lord, I, I, I've got it. I, I understood you. And it must have been like Christ telling him, you know, as many as the stars in the heaven, this is how often you are to forgive another. 70, whether it's 70 times seven or 7 million times seven, you know, it makes no matter. It would have been, it would have shaken Peter and all the others to hear it because it wasn't part of their view uh, of God or forgiveness. Ambrose. Yeah, I think I'm past 490 on some things. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually have a question I might put in here. I'll enter. Okay. How would you interpret his servants in the middle paragraph? Our good master values the person of his servants just priests, religious elders, or any of us who seek to serve him. I would say any of us, by virtue of our baptism, we are baptized priest, prophet, king, participating in the, the, the life of Christ himself. And so we are to be Christ to others. And so the saintly soul, like many of these monks or elders in the desert, weren't priests. You know, that they were simply those who went to the desert seeking Christ and to give themselves over to him fully. And it's because of that desire for him that, and the wisdom and the love that was, you know, that flowed out of that, that they 
people started to come to them to seek counsel. And so in the family, for example, I think it would be, you know, the how, how our good master values the person of his servants, parents, mother, father for their children, or friends, or those who aid us in the struggle in the faith, you know, can be this instrument of mercy as much and sometimes more uh, than, than those who are professional religious, as it were. And Henry Nowen always has this way. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He, he, he was a great, he's passed away not too long ago, but uh, he, his writings were, I think, more well-known like in the 80s, 90s. The last part of his life he worked for, he was a professor at one of the Ivy League schools and then a great spiritual writer, lecturer, and then eventually worked for L'Arche for the last 10 years of his life. But a great spiritual writer, but he says, you know, most often we experience the love and the mercy of God through the direct contact of the hand and the mercy of the person who's in front of us, who reaches out to touch us when we're suffering and engages us, you know, in, at those moments where we need light or support or strength. The God is active and present in that moment. And I think there is a kind of clericalism that the church has struggled with in one form or another uh, over the course of the centuries that can be problematic. There can be an anti-clericalism too, but uh, I think to put a priest up on a pedestal or to, you know, to treat him in this way, it doesn't take long before you knock him off of that, or, or it frees people from that responsibility of seeking to live a holy life, to live their baptismal vows, and to embrace the grace that God has given to them in all of its fullness, if there are professional religious to do that. And we don't find any of that in the writings of the fathers, that all of us are called to live to, in that fullness of life that has come to us through Christ, by the grace of our, our baptism, that we're all called to the holiness and to enter into this spiritual battle that we hear about in order that that grace might bear the greatest fruit possible in our lives. And so everything that is said here about an elder could be said about a parent. And, you know, in my faith life, there are friends that through their influence and their, their kindness and generosity spirit brought me into the church, you know, and, <clears throat> and how is that something that's less powerful or, or important? So it's a, a good question. You know, God values those who have really responded in this powerful way and will act in and through them. And so it's not only, as, as you said, the priests, religious or elders, you know, ideally uh, they should because their life is saying, you know, I give my life over with complete abandon to him. But in, in reality, that should be the response of in all of our hearts. So I know it's, it's 826 and we would be going into a next section here. So why don't we stop just a few minutes early, uh, but this is a beautiful section.
And it brought us back to some of the earlier themes too. And so it would be a good one, I think, to, to read over again. And so again, don't be afraid to bring back some questions or comments at the next group. Okay, wonderful comments, wonderful questions tonight. Thank you all, that's great. All right, so won't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Thanks. 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 Thanks.